Let's pray and uh, we'll get started. Heavenly Father, again, we just come to you asking for your wisdom and understanding in your word. Speak to us through, through that spirit. Um, Lord, as we just talked about these people, uh, so many that have had surgeries here, just lift each and every one of them up and ask for quick healing and that you would just bring them back quickly to uh, this group. We ask as well, Father, that you just give the parents uh, comfort as well. For uh, Kaylee, I know this from having gone through th little things with our own children, just the pain it causes parents to see their children suffering. And Lord, that just reminds me that uh, you do not desire that any should perish, that you do not want any of your children to suffer eternally, and that this is what really we are here for, to, to know you, to love you, and to be able to go tell people the good news about Jesus. There are so many lost, so many dying and hurting, and they need to know this message. So, Lord, give us not only the, the knowledge, but the love for the lost, that we would share this truth with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we saw that we have been forgiven and that we have a clean conscience as we stand before God, that we can with boldness enter the most holy place. And we talked about what that meant and how the devil was really good about trying to uh, have us remember our sins, not to grab hold of the hope that we have in Jesus, but rather to you know, feel like we're not good enough, that there's something that we can add to the gospel, when in fact there's nothing we can do but be grateful and give God glory for it. So today we are going to be moving on and starting in verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to basically just let the scripture speak here, but um, just keep what we talked about last week in mind as we do, because tonight it's going to be a little bit heavier in the sense that it says this in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation with which will devour the adversaries. So we just get done saying you have confidence to enter the holy place and now he's switching saying but, but don't get cocky because if you're going to deliberately keep on sinning after you have received this wonderful message, this wonderful gospel, he said there isn't going to be a sacrifice left for you but rather only a fearful expectation of judgment. And so the tables have turned here, and he's reminding us that cheap grace has no place in Scripture. And I have two words highlighted there, sin and truth, because I think sometimes we, we're so used to hearing those words, we don't really digest what they mean. And so if I let the Scriptures interpret sin... Sin is lawlessness. That's what 1 John 3, 4 says. So anyway, sin is lawlessness. Now, truth, if we would define truth, there's a lot of different uh, scriptures that would define that. 
your word is truth, says Psalm 119, verse 60, or your law is truth, Psalm 119, 42. Jesus says he is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, the word of God. So ultimately, all of these things are coming back to this. The word is truth. So if we sin willfully, what sin? Lawlessness. If you're going to live lawlessly, then that's sin. And he says, if you will also, it says, after you've received the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the word of God. If you're going to reject that, that's what sin is. Now we're going to talk more about that as we go, but um, just kind of reminded here about the fearful expectation of judgment, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the point of this passage is ultimately to bring fear to your mind, fear of Hades, fear of hell, because that's what's at stake. Numbers 15.30 says this, the person who does anything presumptuously, in other words, willfully, whether he is a native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach to the Lord or on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people because they have despised the Lord's will, word and broken his commands. They must surely be cut off. Their guilt remains on them. I just wanted to show you that Hebrews here what we just read is borrowing from the Old Testament, borrowing from Scripture. Because this is exactly what Hebrews was just saying. That if you continually to willfully sin, to bring reproach on the Lord, you're going to be cut off. Your guilt remains. A fearful expectation of judgment. Same thing in the Old Testament, but we're reading it in the New Testament. But you know, I think it's easy for us to justify that in our own heads and say, well, I know I'm going to willfully sin, but I, you know, conviction. I know that it's wrong. I'm convicted that it's wrong. And I do it anyway. There's still a problem. Now, again, I'm not trying to put us under works righteousness again. However, I also don't want you to get to that point of cheap grace to where we justify our sins. Because, and we know better. We know that we shouldn't do, do these things, but we thought, ah, Oh well, and we just kind of like sweep it out in the corner of our minds so that we don't deal with it. That is what this is talking about. And it is something that we should examine ourselves for because otherwise there is an aspect of cheap grace. And it's the fear of the Lord that keeps you from having that sweeping it under the rug attitude. Yeah, we justify ourselves basically by saying, you know, we, we don't despise the Lord's words or break his commands, but we do when we decide what's right. Um, you know, the homosexuality, well, well, it's okay, it's all right, this is a real, he's a really nice person, you know, he's genuinely a good person, so we're going to decide that it's okay for him to be a homosexual or whatever. I just think we try to con get God to conform to our way of thinking and our desires. And it is not, that should scare us if that's in our heart, that we want to make God conform to, to who we are and what we desire. We conform to his word, period. Whether you understand it, whether you agree with it, whether you like it makes no difference. We conform to God not to the patterns of this world.
So let's search, see what John says about this. In John 1:17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I love this. I talked to Ron in Israel here this week again, and uh, I sent him our message that we did on tabernacles. And I said, I just want you to just see, make sure that I'm not, you know, leading people astray here. I want to make sure that what I'm saying is right. And he emailed back and said it was all great except for one thing. He said the law, the Torah, Torah is not law. He said Torah is a way of life. What God gave Moses was law. But Torah is the way of life. I, that's what I emailed him and I said, I remember you saying that and I should have remembered that myself because it's a huge, important distinction. What God gave Moses was the law, but now that has been put in our heart through Yeshua and it has become a way of life for us. It isn't anything that brings condemnation. It isn't anything that even brings salvation. It is simply a way of life. This tells us how we live. Not because I have to, it's just who I am in Christ Jesus. It's who I become. It is my way of life. And so when I kind of see this, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Did Jesus get rid of the law? Not at all. He says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says, not one jot, not one tittle will pass away from the law as long as heaven and earth remain. So Jesus didn't get rid of it, but grace and truth came through Yeshua, and he has given us a way of life. So, just kind of parallels with that, what, what Ron was saying. In Deuteronomy 5.29, he says, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. You see, God loves us. He desires that none should perish, and he gives us his word, his commandments. Why? So that you can ruin your life and make it impossible? No. So that it might go well with them, those that I love forever. That's why. Ecclesiastes 12:13. let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. I think too often we can become short-sighted today, and we don't think eternally, but rather we, we want whatever here, and we want it now. You know, we, we're not worried about what we're going to be doing 150 years from now. We're worried about what we're doing five minutes from now. And fear drives us to the Lord. And obedience to God's word, that is a symptom of God's grace. Okay, we look at, I, I think anyway, the church too often looks at the law as a disease, but I think it's a symptom of God's grace. Let that sink in a little bit. That it's because of God's grace that we keep the commandments and that we're even able to because of his grace. So how do we get a healthy fear? Where does it come from? Deuteronomy 31.11 tells us this. When all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, the strangers who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God 
and carefully observe all the words of this law. We looked at this during our Feast of Tabernacles. That he's going to gather them to Zion so that the law will go out so that they will hear it. Well, first they'll fear God, hear the word, learn it, and do it. That's the goal. And I'm going to wager that while God has commanded that this is what's supposed to be done, too many times in churches today, not only do we not read the Bible, if we do, we don't want to read from the Pentateuch. From the first five books, let alone obey what the first five books, because by some reason, as I've said before, we consider it some merit not to obey those commands. How did we get that far? How did, how did this happen to us? Well, we're almost ready to get to the next verse, but Exodus 32:33 says, The Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Uh, the background here, Moses has gone to intercede for the people. Remember this in Exodus? And as a Christ figure, that's what Moses does. He becomes that mediator between God and man. And he, Moses goes and he says, listen, don't kill these people. Don't kill them. And instead he says, I'll go. I'll, I'll die for them. Blot me out of the book of life. And God responds by saying this here. No, whoever has sinned against me, I'm going to blot them out. Well, today it's the same. That's what Jesus has done. He's our mediator. Put this, put Christ in this. Christ said, no, I don't want you guys to die. I will take their sins. But let me tell you something. If you don't have a relationship with Yeshua, if... You are not his. You die for your own sins. The same truth that we see in Exodus is in the New Testament here. That you can say that you, you know, well, I was baptized when I was three, or I said a prayer when I was ten, or whatever the case might be. That doesn't make you a Christian, as whoever it was says. It doesn't make you a Christian any more than, you know, going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. There has to be a relationship with Christ. Psalm 68, 21 says, But God will wound the head of his enemies, the hairy scalp of the one who still goes on in his sin, in his trespasses. So, Jesus is saying, yeah, I'll pay for their sin. But God says, only if they have a heart to follow you. If not, they pay for their own sin. And that is what Hebrews is going to or is saying, if you willfully continue to sin, after you have received the knowledge of truth, which is Jesus, after you've received truth and you continually to deliberately ignore or live in lawlessness, there's no sacrifice for sin. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Postmodernism Post crept into the churches too. I mean, look at how many Bible studies you can go read You'll read a scripture verse, and then the question is, what, what do, you do you think, think this, this means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how does this apply to you know, your life in this way, or whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's, it doesn't matter what scripture says or what God's intent was in it. What matters is how do you twist it to fit you. It's all about us, exactly not about him. That's exactly what they do. 
Yeah, and so that's the postmodern religion that the church has adopted. And that's why churches are a mess. Not just that. I mean, they've adopted evolution. They've adopted so many lies of the devil that are out there to make a man-centered gospel not a God-centered one. And that's how we justify, well, you know, I, what, what do you want in the church? Like, why don't we take a, a poll and see what makes you feel good? What will keep you coming to church? Well, that doesn't make any difference. What matters is What's truth. truth. Well, Romans 6.1 says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Today, I think there are a large number of Christians who feel that they reject the grace of God if they could keep the commandments of God. And that's not true. You do reject the grace of God if you are trying to earn your salvation by being good and keeping the commandments. Yes, that is rejecting the grace of God. But that isn't what keeping the commandments is all about. And it's that change of mind that we have to get people to see for them to be able to to do what we've been talking about through this whole book of Hebrews. But we have been so ingrained in thinking that we are rejecting grace by keeping the commands. And yet the scripture is saying, no, we don't reject the commandments of God. Certainly not. Psalm 119, verse 88 says, Revive me according to your loving kindness, so that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Why revive? So that you keep the law. We obey because of his grace. I've said this so many times. When did the Ten Commandments come about? After grace. After God delivered them from Egypt. God says, Now because I saved you, do this. Don't do that. Likewise, the same with the cross. Because Jesus has died for us and freed us and taken away the condemnation, now he says, do this and don't do that. Because I saved you. Because of my grace, obey. That's Christianity right there. And it's one that is a minority in the church. They just they go together. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But it goes on in verse 10. The very next verse, it says, For we are workmen, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He just said, okay, by grace you've been saved. Now how many times do we hear that? And we, we get, you know, verse 8 and 9 quoted, but we leave 10 off in the dust. They go together. That we are created in Christ for good works. What's a good work? You don't get to decide what a good work is. God's word decides what a good work is. And that's obedience to the law of God. So God says, I created you to be obedient, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Them are those commandments. So the cross and the commands go together. You cannot separate them. 
Um, it it kind of reminds me of, of Ray Comfort a little bit here too, you know, defining the works. I love Ray Comfort, and every time I would go out and evangelize, it's just like living his life. You see it. You see those the same thing that you see on their his videos. People will tell you, "Well, I'm a pretty good person. I, you know, I I, I go to church. I, I pray at night. You know, I I give money. I when people are in need, I help them out." They try to define what a good work is. Well, that's a filthy rag in God's sight. Okay, we don't get to define it. Ray Comfort uses the example of a sheep. He says you might look at a sheep out there and you go, oh, look at that little white sheep. Oh, it's so pretty. And then it snows and you go, oh, that sheep's not so white anymore. <laughs> when you compare that white sheep to the purity of that snow, it's not pure, it's not white at all. And this is what we do with our good works when we compare our good to maybe say, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or some other, you know, serial killer out there. We're looking, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. I go to church, I, I tithe, I, I don't cuss and swear all that much. Uh, you know, I, I don't do drugs or, or whatever. But then when you compare your holiness to God's righteousness, which is, by the way, his commandments, his word, it's like, ooh, I'm really not clean at all. I'm filthy. And that is why we have to have Christ, because you'll never, this is what verse 8 and 9 are talking about. You are not pure, but Christ becomes purity for you. And when he does... He gives you, empowers you, has created you to do good works, to obey. But next time you hear verse you know, 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 quoted, tell them to continue on in verse 10, because it's vital to see that connection. Verse 28, getting back to Hebrews here, verse 28 says, Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That word rejected here, I've got it up here in the Greek, it literally means to, to do away with what has been laid down. In other words, <clears throat> look what the church has done with the law of Moses. I would say they have done away with it. They have rejected it. They have, they have called it something that is not pure and holy, but something that is vile and against the grace of God. Notice that here in Hebrews, he's using present tense verbs here, not past tense. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses dies without the testimony, or dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, which is rejecting Moses, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. In other words, no relationship with Christ. So we've talked about this towards the beginning of our Hebrew study of how important this verse is. How much worse punishment. And the previous punishment we're discussing is death. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> We're talking worse than that. So, in other words, if you reject Moses, 
You don't have Christ. Yeah, you're going to die on the, on the two or three witnesses. The law is going to judge you. But if you reject Moses after you've received the knowledge of truth, understand you know, what Yeshua did for you, then you're going to even be in worse punishment, worse type of hell, because you rejected grace. Yeah, I, that, and this to me takes this whole cheap grace thing and it blows that right out of the water. You know, well, I'm saved. I, I go to church. I'm a Christian. Jesus loves me, whatever. Yeah, how much worse punishment you're going to uh, face if you continually reject the law of God, His commandments. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, or some say lawlessness. <clears throat> Psalm 103, verse 17, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to such as keep His covenant, and to those who remember His commandments to do them. In other words, you want mercy from God, from Jesus? Fear Him and obey Him. Mercy is yours even then when you can't keep the commandments. Because I can't. I can't keep them. But my heart wants to. So, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting and everlasting on those who fear Him. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Just how we have removed the fear of God from society. Hosea 10.12, sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness, you have reaped iniquity, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Why? Because you trusted in your own way, in the multitude of your mighty men. Yeah. Okay, you trust in your own works? No, you're in trouble. We need to reap mercy, and when we reap mercy, he rains down righteousness on us. So, it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Hebrews 10, getting back there here, just to the one that we just looked at here. Um, just to re repeat, basically, if you reject the law after Jesus has come, it's worse than rejecting the law before he came. Okay, so just continuing on into verse 30, it says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. He's quoting Deuteronomy 32, verse 35 here. And as always, why in the world would Paul be quoting some terrible Old Testament if it was something that we really don't need anymore? Yet, the, as you've seen, just about the whole book of Hebrews is doing that. It's quoting the Old Testament, showing the Old Testament is just as valid because it's one and the same book. He's just elaborating on it. So, quoting 
Deuteronomy 32.35. We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. God, we've... He's a lion and a lamb. We've talked about that before too. We often want to picture him as that lamb, but not the lion, that he is going to judge. I don't know if you remember Jonathan Edwards, a great uh, preacher in the 1700s, probably most known for his sinner, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. He was credited for leading all kinds of revivals, probably some of the greatest revivals ever known in you know, church history outside of Pentecost. Well, his base text of uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God is Deuteronomy 32, 35, this verse here that is being quoted in Hebrews 10, verse 30. So I want to just kind of show you a couple of things that he said in this sermon. He said, in this verse is threatened the vengeance of God on the wicked, unbelieving Israelites who were God's visible people and who lived under the means of grace. Did you catch that? That in the Old Testament, even Jonathan Edwards was acknowledging and seeing that God's people were under grace. Most people in the church today wouldn't, wouldn't even catch that. They'd think that God's people were under the law, and then when Jesus came, then grace came. But it says they lived under the means of grace, but who, notwithstanding all God's wonderful works towards them, remained void of counsel, having no understanding in them. In other words, despite seeing everything God did, all of his miracles, all of his wonders, they still wouldn't listen to him. He goes on, there's no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Or the New Testament would say God desires that none should perish. Men's hands cannot be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He is not only able to cast wicked men into hell, but he can most easily do it. Almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. I would love to see this sermon preached in a church today. And I can guarantee you that if I came as a guest speaker and just started reading this sermon, I would be in trouble. I'm not sure very many people would understand it. That's what I was going to say. Probably not. It's too well. Yeah. It's too well. I need to paraphrase it a little. Yeah. But that last sentence... That last sentence flatters us. We, we flatter ourselves saying that we would escape hell. Yeah. In any way of our own, we deserve hell. Notice they were under grace, though, right? So they say that when he would read or do this sermon, that the crowd would just, there were moans coming from the crowd. That they understood what he was saying. That the crowd understood, we're doomed without Jesus. It goes on, 
Um, well, first of all, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, practice, you who practice lawlessness. That, in essence, is what Jonathan Edwards was talking about in that verse. Anyway, he continued saying, they do not only justly deserve to be cast down thither into hell, but the sentence of the law of God, that eternal and immutable rule of righteousness that God has fixed between him and mankind is gone out against them and stands against them so that they are bound over already to hell. He that believes not is condemned already, John 3.18. So that every unconverted man properly belongs to hell. John 3.16, we kind of just like Ephesians 2.8, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we stop. Yeah. It goes on and it talks about this very thing. But he who does not believe stands condemned already. That's what Jonathan Edwards is talking about. We deserve hell without Christ. And so, powerful. He goes on and he says, There are the black clouds of God's wrath now hanging directly over your heads, full of the dreadful storm, big with thunder. And were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. What I liked about this was can you see just how culture is so powerful? Culture fascinates me because it, it really dictates how we think. When somebody says something, I see it completely different than when somebody from this culture says it or whatever. Because contrast this to what I hear today constantly. God bless America. This has been my problem with some of the, this Trump you know, prophecy stuff that, hey, Trump is going to be the guy that's going to solve all of our problems. I can't get over the fact, why would God bless America? But typically most Americans are like, why wouldn't God bless America? I go to church. Okay, I get my coffee at the coffee house. I, I give them money. You know, this is the kind of attitude that we have, this self-centered, we deserve God's love. How dare he not forgive me? That's not the message that Jonathan Edwards is giving here. But this is the attitude of Americans. Now, I'll tell you, I am constantly in awe and in amazement of God's patience with us and his love and mercy. So... I can see God blessing America because of his mercy and patience. 
but we don't deserve it. What do you think of the phrase or the comment that God is protecting America because we're continuing to back Israel? Well, I think there's some truth to that. But again, is this because, hey, it's what we've done, so we deserve for God to bless us because we've blessed Israel? Here's the other problem with that is what does it mean to bless Israel? I, we've got all kinds of Zionists today who are out there trying to bless Israel, sending money to the, the uh, Temple Institute, uh, sending money to people who will bring Jews from Ethiopia back to Jerusalem to their homeland, but yet they won't share the gospel with them. All you've done is curse Israel, not bless them. There is no blessing apart from Christ. And so we also have to define that. What does it truly mean to bless Israel? Well, I think it, it, when, when God asks for us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, I don't think he's talking about you know, another peace treaty with, with Jordan. He's talking about the peace of Jerusalem. There can be no peace unless... <laughs> yeah, unless they know Jesus. We're to be praying for the gospel to be spread to the Jew. That's how you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Well, verse 30 goes on, We know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Notice his people there. So again, Jonathan Edwards was basically taking you know, his sermon out of Deuteronomy, or you could say Hebrews 10.30. But again, the Lord will judge his people. Judgment begins in the house of God. When the Lord returns, it's going to begin with us. Because he's going to hold us accountable for our laziness, complacency in the gospel. Psalm 50, verse 16 says, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes? Who are God's statutes for then? For his people. He expects you to keep his commands. He does not expect the wicked to keep them. As a matter of fact, they're not even theirs. Or, or to take my covenant in your mouth. These things you have done and I have kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. So God rebukes these people. They're supposedly supposed to be here in Psalms, supposedly supposed to be Christians, but he's, he's kind of calling them out and saying, you're not, you're wicked. There's no intercession for them. And this is exactly what Hebrews is trying to keep you from doing, is becoming one of these confused Christians who think that you're getting to heaven on cheap grace. Verse 31 continues here in Hebrews, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Um, once they were illuminated, they suffered persecution, basically. You can go read in, in Acts chapter 8. We see right after the illumination of the Spirit, we see that there was a great uh, a persecution that broke out, and all in Jerusalem scattered, except for the apostles, it says. And um, 
we can go and look in Acts, but I want to take you to some history here and show you what was going on to kind of maybe prepare you. Can I just say one thing, Jose? Sure. That verse 31, it is <coughs> thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I do not see that on Instagram pictures no. ever. <laughs> you know, like affirmations of the day and pretty little picture verses and encouragement. Never have I ever seen that verse. And that's tomorrow. what Jonathan Edwards was saying. Yes, that's what I'm so talking about. One of those white girl Instagrams. Have, like, the uh -huh. all over yes. <laughs> It just is not. <laughs> but that's exactly what I'm saying, though, with Jonathan Edwards. That's a Jonathan Edwards sermon. You can't get away with that in church today. Why? I'm reading out of Hebrews, the New Testament. But we are very good about picking and choosing what we, you know. It doesn't put call. coins in the plate, right? Yeah. <laughs> Suetonius, uh, a Roman historian in uh, AD 69 to AD 122 and to set the stage uh, I just uh, about what I'm just going to kind of run through quickly I want to show you some historical records from pagans and how they viewed the, the Christians at this time so when Hebrews is talking about this and it's setting the stage for what we're going to talk about next week as well when we get into Hebrews chapter 11 the great faith chapter of all these people who suffered for their faith so this is from people this is, this is pagan his, historical records this time yep. of this Hebrews yep Claudius uh, refers to the expulsion of the Jews and he says, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus, which Christ, he expelled them from Rome. Now I just want to show you the accuracy of this because this is the historical record. We see in Acts chapter 18 confirmation of this history. It says, he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born of Pontus, who had re recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. All right. So all I'm showing you here is that history and the Bible are jiving together. Now I want to show you what was... <laughs> Sorry, I haven't heard that phrase ever. <laughs> okay. Here's what's going together. Suetonius says this. During his reign, Claudius here, uh, many abuses were severely punished and put down, and no fewer new laws made. A limit was set to expenditures. The public banquets were confined to distrib distribution of food, the sale of any kind of cooked uh, viands. Basically, all that is is uh, an item of food. Um, in the taverns was forbidden, with the exception of pulse and vegetables. Whereas before every sort of dainty was exposed for sale, punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. In other words, the government was imposing all kinds of stipulations to regulate the behavior of Christians, to, to limit them. And so you couldn't sell good food. You could only get this junky food, dainty stuff. And so when the government begins instilling laws upon us, regulating our behavior, I can tell you this, know that persecution's right around the corner. That was what was going on here. This is how it began, the government instituting these kinds of things. So 
it goes on, but all, or Tacitus here says this, but all human efforts, all the lavish gifts of the emperor, the propitiations of the gods did not banish the sinister belief that the conflagration was the result of an order. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Background here, Rome uh, burned. Nero seemed to started the fire, and so he blames the Christians for blaming uh, or, or for starting the fire. And so he, he basically goes after the Christians to take the heat off of himself. Now, this kind of rings true from our you know, pages today, our newspaper headlines. Christians are the ones that are really to blame for COVID, to blame for hate speech and homosexuality and all of these kind of things. Christians are the ones that are blamed for it. We're the ones that even though when there's a disaster, it's the Christians who are out there, you know, helping and, and, and be giving money and doing all those things, Christians are still the bad guys that have hate in their hearts. Makes no sense. That tells you this is a spiritual battle we're dealing with. But notice here in the time of Rome that they were hated on the account of their abominations. What kind of abominations did the Christians do that was so terrible? Nothing. And yet that's what we're living in today. It goes on, Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So here's more his history Again, confirming that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And most a mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Okay? And he goes on and he says, According, Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then, upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Oh, man. wow. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. This is just... Again, what history is saying, showing you the hatred of Christians. Pliny, Pliny is writing a letter here uh, to Trajan because Pliny hadn't persecuted the Christians yet, and he didn't know how to do it. So he was trying to get advice, what's the best way to interrogate these Christians? And he says this, Sir, it is my constant method to apply myself to you for the resolution of all my doubts. For who can better govern my dilatory way of proceeding or instruct my ignorance? I have never been present at the examination of the Christians, on which account I am unacquainted with, what uses to be inquired into, and what and how far they used to be punished. Nor are my doubts small, whether there be not a distinction to be made between the ages of the accused. So in other words, do we treat children like we treat adults? Do we, you know, give them the same torture? Whether tender youth ought to have the same punishment with strong men. Whether there be not room for pardon upon repentance. So if they do repent, what do you do with them? 
whether it may not be an advantage to one that had been a Christian that he has forsaken Christianity, whether the bare name without any crimes besides or the crimes adhering to that name be to be punished. In the meantime, I have taken this course about those who have been brought before me as Christians. In other words, this is what I've been doing. I asked them whether they were Christians or not. If they confessed that they were Christians, I asked them again and a third time, intermixing threatenings with the questions. If they persevered in their confession, I ordered them to be executed. For I did not doubt, but let their confession be of any sort whatsoever. This positiveness and inflexible obstinacy deserved to be punished. He says, there have been some of this mad sect whom I took notice of in particular as Roman citizens that they might be sent to that city. After some time, as is usual in such examinations, the crime spread itself and many more cases came before me. In other words, people would squeal and they'd find others. A libel was sent to me, though without an author containing many names of persons accused. These denied that were that they were Christians now or ever had been. They called upon the gods and supplicated to your image, which I caused to be brought to me for that purpose with frankincense and wine. In other words, those that denied it, he made them offer sacrifices, you might say, to the emperor, to God. And they did. This is one of those uh, Mark of the Beast moments. Okay. Um, he goes on, and just to kind of wrap it up, they also cursed Christ, none of which things it is said can any of those that are ready Christians be compelled to do. In other words, he said, if they cursed Christ, there was no way they could be a Christian. It's been said that you can't do that if you're really a Christian. So I thought it fit to let them go. Others of them that were named in the libel said that they were Christians, but presently denied it again, that indeed they had been Christians, but it ceased to be so some three years ago or some many more. And one there was uh, that said he had not been so these 20 years. All these worshipped your image and the images of our gods. These also cursed Christ. So are you ready for this? Because as a shepherd... That is kind of what I think we are supposed to do as shepherds to get you ready for. Um, wrapping up here, verse 34. I'm just going to try and finish up Hebrews the 10. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. So... Hebrews is now just picking up and saying he's talking about this persecution that was going on. The things that I was just reading for you, and he says they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property because they knew they had better and lasting possessions in, in, in heaven. And that's something that we should really always have in the forefront of our mind. He says don't throw away your confidence. Um, it'll be richly rewarded. Kind of reminds me of the boldness that he was saying. We have boldness. Last week we talked about that boldness to enter the most holy place. Um, 
in Acts 15, or chapter 4, verse 15, I'm not going to go through this to save some time, but this is where we also see the persecution had begun. And then in Acts 4, verse 29, it says, Now, Lord, look on the threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Peter's response to the, the threats that the Pharisees were giving them, saying, you know, don't you dare speak in this guy's name anymore. Peter's response was, no, we, we can't listen to that, and prayed that they would have boldness to continue to speak the word. That's how Peter responded to it. So in verse 36, it says this, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So endurance, that word endurance is the exact same word that's used in Revelation 14, 12, where it says here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. So we need to have endurance or patience so that we will do the will of God, so that we will keep the commandments. Revelation 12:17 says the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. In other words, those who persevere or have endurance are those who continue to obey. That they're not to grow tired. We're not to grow weary of the fight, but that we continue to walk in obedience. Even though we're tired, even though people are starting to turn on you and you know tell you that you're legalistic or whatever. <coughs> Second Timothy three twelve, I'm just going to give you some verses that are all going to kind of say the same thing. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Tell you what, you can live in Christ and not live godly and you will not suffer any persecution. This is why the devil's going after those who keep the commandments of God. He doesn't say they might or possibly will be persecuted. It says you will be persecuted. And this is what we're seeing in the churches with, you know, so many, you know, cake makers that, you know, refuse to make a cake for a uh, lesbian or whatever the case might be. Um, you, you do what's right, you're going to stand up against some persecution. First Peter 4.1, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, the same attitude. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If you're not worried about your flesh, you're not going to live in sin. James 5.10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. We're going to look at those guys next week. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Where are these verses in our New Testament churches? It just We, we don't talk about all of these Versus talking about suffering as Christians. No, you're just going to be blessed because you're a Christian. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3, That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. You're appointed to suffer. 
Romans 5.3, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Acts 5.40, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. These are all New Testament verses. Romans 8.36, for your, for your sake we are killed all day long, counted as sheep for slaughter, yet in these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Man, it sure does seem to talk about a lot of suffering, but somehow we miss those verses. So... Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. We don't even know what it means to suffer yet, do we? Like losing a job would be suffering. Yeah. Verse 37 says in Hebrews 10, For yet a little while, and we who he and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith, but if anyone shrinks back or draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. The NIV says, if anyone shrinks back, God will not be pleased with him. Guys, we need to start thinking and preparing our attitude that, hey, there's a war coming. We need to get ready for war. You need to start you know, getting your head in the game getting psyched up and getting prepared so that we don't grow tired, we don't grow weary. And these are verses that we should really be taking to heart and meditating on because the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, this easy-peasy heaven stuff, like you're just going to waltz right into the promised land, is not biblical. You need to be prepared for battle. Luke 9.62, Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This kind of reminds us, we go again, going back to don't uh, uh, throw away your confidence, is what he's saying here. Don't draw back, don't shrink back. Matthew 19.21, So Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, home is where your heart is. If it's in the world, well, you're going home. If it's Jesus, you're going to be with him. So our heart can't be in two places at once. And so we need to just say, wait a minute, American culture. We need to empty that, and we need to have a mind of Christ and say, God has put me here to go share the gospel. God has put me here not to shrink back, not to be silent, but to enter with boldness in confidence of, my, of, of who I am because of Christ and in the truth of what he has for me to share. So the last verse here just says this, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So that's how this chapter ends, and I want that to be our confession. I want that to be something that you meditate upon this week, in that we are to get our head in the game.
So, um, any th other final thoughts? Um, you're talking about all of the suffering and patience and endurance. Reminded me of in Isaiah 49. Let me get to it. Um, 49, 3 and 4. Yeah, primarily 3 and 4. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, and you will bring me glory. I replied, but my work seems so useless. I have, sent my, I have spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet, hmm. I leave it all in the Lord's hand. I will trust God for my reward. Hmm, that's and it good. just reminded me of, like, you know, even if we don't see any of our works come to any sort of fruition. Yeah. That speaks to me. I feel that way all the time. It's like, what is the point? Nobody's listening anyway. Nobody cares. Yeah, that's motherhood in a verse. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, it doesn't matter. We shouldn't matter. It doesn't matter what the response is from the world. No. It's hard to wrap your head around an ultimate being who is so capable of such beauty and love and perfection and at the same time such ultimate, complete, total wrath and annihilation of anything that is not. <coughs> yeah. Oh and he's done it before. Well, we just ask Noah. Yeah. <laughs> and that is the... That's the kind of thing that we have lost in our culture is that understanding of uh, a, the sovereignty and power of God that is not to be controlled by us, not to be manipulated by us, and not for us to conform and fashion into an idol of who we want him to be. And that goes to Proverbs 1, 7. Fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That fear of the Lord is where we start to become wise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I always heard the saying, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Mm. Never did I think that be I might be convicted. Two yeah. to three witnesses. <laughs> and here you are. <laughs> yeah, it's a scary thought. And, you know, there's always that fine line, that balance that we have to watch out for. That that we don't get to, the, to a, a works righteous aspect. It's a matter of realizing, though, we are not worthy. We don't deserve any of God's grace. We don't deserve it. And that's where God wants us, is he wants us to realize that this, there, there has been no merit of mine. There has been no good works of mine that has made me worthy of what he's given me in, in his son Jesus. And, you know, it's just it's an interesting progression here in chapter 10 where we saw that boldness to enter the most holy place. We're forgiven to the but. Don't get into cheap grace because you're still, you know, uh, on a teeter-totter if you are not uh, just trusting in Him and Him alone. And then to the persecution. Don't shrink back. And then chapter 11 now, he's going to get into this great faith chapter of all these people who were tortured terribly because of their faith. And, but yet joyfully so because they had 
their eyes fixed on the prize, the promise. Well, and also to your comment, you've got to think of Satan, who was Lucifer, who was in heaven, you know, one of the most beautiful angels with God, and what, you know, a little bit of, what's the right Pride. word, evil, yeah, in him, and, and what, uh, you know, that caused, he can't allow any of that anymore, but there was such great love, he still reached out to us even so, through Jesus. I mean, he, he has to protect, or I don't know if that's the right word, but he, he like you were saying, how can he be so good and he be, be so bad? No. You can't. Oh, I'm not saying bad. I'm not saying bad. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. mean, mean, mean. Like, he, he can't allow any of the leaven or any of the, you know what I mean? You can't be holy. The word is just. Yes. Yeah. I've heard a, a really awesome picture, and I think any parent in the room will know this or feel this. They're saying, like, as to understand this, you, you, it's hard if you're not a parent. You don't know absolute love um, until you've, ex- or you don't, <laughs> what is he say? Anyways, the idea is that once you have had, once you have a child, like you, you know that because of the love you have for them, you also have the ability of complete wrath, right? Like to protect this child. <laughs> Not, not not against the child to protect this child, right? Yes. And then eventually, oh, eventually, in teen- in teenage years, especially, you get to the other. No, but like that contrast, like as a parent, you get you get a picture of that. The level of love that you have is is you know it's it's the other side of that, right? You have that fierce, yeah. The fierceness. That if anyone would hurt your child, you could murder them with your bare hands. I we've been studying Revelation as a family, and I we've been looking at the first seals, and those I think am I right in saying that we've decided that those are God's. I'm looking at you. Oh, sorry. That they are God's. They're God's wrath against His people, right? The first. The first seals? No. The 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 seals are more basically. But it's near the end that it's that's Satan's wrath, like God's wrath on. Oh, you mean well, the the seals seem to be more the antichrists, um, God allowing the antichrist and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Then the trumpets, that's God's wrath on the ungodly, and the vials, God's wrath completed on the ungodly. Right, but the point but not is God's that wrath the, on His people. But His people are persecuted. <coughs> such a time though I guess is what I'm yeah. saying but he shows his mercy to us by not allowing us to go through really bad stuff we hope right yeah. well he spares he his will, wrath but he allows wrath. us right. well, to it, suffer yeah, to because it's his wrath. Exactly. purifying yeah. it's just kind of like for us not against us right. that's right. why he does it well that's what I'm just saying I just see that in the persecution that he, he's that is his mercy even in, in that in that kind of allowing us to only go through the world's wrath? <laughs> yeah, and not okay. So we just got to the little bugs, okay? I'm really freaked out about the little Apollyons. They kind of creep me out. I'm just glad I think the what the little the little well, 